name is Lori Ellis, and I'm a writer and editor with Informa Pharma Intelligence. We publish Script, Pinksheet, Invivo, MedTech Insight, HBW Insight, and the Generics Bulletin. Today, I'm here with two thought leaders in the industry, Jay Ferrero, EVP, Chief Information and Technology Officer, and Brian McDowell, VP, Electronic Clinical Outcome Assessment, Science and Consulting at Clario. We are here today to discuss decentralized trials, their benefits for society, and the technologies that make them possible. I want to thank you both for joining the discussion today. So let's just dive right in. How would you define decentralization? And Brian, I'm going to go to you first. Thanks, Laura. It's uh, great to be here. So I think when we look at the definition of decentralized trials, this is a, a term that is being uh, used very inconsistently across the industry. But if we want to look at the, the original uh, definition, which is when one or more assessment is conducted away from the investigator site, um, we can see that certainly here at Clario, we've been doing that for, for way more than 20 years with through ECGs at home and through ECOA and EPRO components. I think when we do look at the industry and how it's you know, being altered, one of the key pieces that we sort of use interchangeably is the digitalization, uh, the decentralization of trials. And I think it's important to understand that the digitalization of trials very much supports the decentralization. And where we're really trying to get to when we look at the digitalization and decentralization of trials is the flexibility for patients to be able to uh, take part in trials and for the technologies that, that uh, Clario offers and, and many other people um, to be able to capture the outcome assessments, whether that's on site, away from the site in the patient's home or in the community. Um, so as we go forward, it's a flexible study model, I think is really where the industry is taking us. And this term of decentralized trials will continue to warp and morph into, into that direction. You know, I, I agree. And I, and I think if anything, I think Brian said it right. Uh, necessity is the mother of invention, right? We talk about Plato's, at least it's attributed to Plato, uh, that I, I think COVID really certainly accelerated uh, and highlighted with bold and underlining uh, the, the concept of, of DCTs. But at the end of the day, um, you're, you're trying to reduce time, financial burden, widen, widen your patient pool, reduce dropout rates, accelerate patient recruitment. These are these are powered by technology, but they still have to follow the science. They still have to follow regulations. Um, regs haven't always kept pace with digital tools, but they're they're doing their best, as as Brian knows far better than I do. But it's um it, it's it's not a panacea, and it's still it's certainly not a silver bullet. But it, but it is going to be a powerful force in the industry for for years to come. I think it's certainly here to stay. Uh, or at least a hybrid model is is here to stay. But we've got to be prepared, and I think Clario is prepared for both, right? The notion of, quote, decentralized trials uh, and, of course, um, you know, more site-based trials, too, and a combination thereof. As we move more and more into these hybrid or decentralized models, we're going to see an acceleration of the number and type of outcome assessments that can be captured anywhere. And I think that's important when we look at a tech company such as Clario and the ability to capture outcome assessments across a broad spectrum of therapeutic errors and indications. And Clara, for example, through imaging that covers a huge swath of, of therapeutic areas, respiratory, ECOA, uh, and uh, precision motion, we get into those areas. We're seeing the number of outcome assessments being able to be captured at site, away from site, or in the local community 
increasing. And I think that's the number that we should be looking at in the industry rather than the number of trials that may have one or more assessment captured remotely or away from site. Well, on that note, since you both are obviously are working with centralized trials, what innovative technologies does Clario particularly provide to help decentralized trials run more efficiently while not compromising the level of care for trial participants or the quality of data being collected? All right, that's a great question. And I'm going I'm to start it with uh, what Jay said before is, you know, we've got to put science first. Um, we see across the industry a lot of shiny new toys, and it's not about putting shiny new toys into a trial. It's about understanding the science and putting that science-backed technology into play to capture the right outcomes, capture the right data at the right time and at the right frequency. So in terms of some of the technologies that we have, and Jay can also allude into this as well, um, one of the most common ones that people will be familiar with is EPRO, or Electronic Patient Reported Outcomes. Um, these have been around for a long, long time. Uh, thankfully, the days of paper are, I say, by and large behind us. <laughs> but we provide many options of how patients can capture their outcomes, whether that is on a provision device that we would either ship out to the sites to be given to the patients or through BYOD. Um, we've also got web opportunities as well. And there's many, many different ways that we can capture these patient-reported outcomes. When we look at the clinician-reported outcomes that may be done by the investigator, we also have tablet bases that we can use handheld, again, using web interfaces as well, so the clinicians can uh, capture their outcome assessments directly into, into our systems. Beyond that, we have the precision motion, uh, which to simplify, and it's not a great term, is a wearables and sensors, but just to call out what that is, to really understand how the human body is moving. And what are the, we can read a lot into that. Along with the respiratory and cardiac uh, safety um, technologies, we have multiple uh, tools in our uh, armory uh, for cardiac safety, whether it's a 12 lead ECG that can be used on site or with the support of, of the right staff at patient's home or in a local facility. Six lead ECGs that can be done directly and used by the patients themselves. Again, with all of these, the most important piece is to make sure patients are trained correctly on how to use these technologies as well. And then we look at blood pressure uh, monitors. We have these that can be you know, self-measured by the patients and respiratory with their spirometry uh, tools that are in there. Imaging, um, although there is possibilities to do in-house in um, or at-home imaging, um, it's not really the right place to do this. So we use a lot of our local imaging um, facilities to capture the images that are required uh, to make it more convenient for patients as well. Yeah, I think you, you, you've, you've summed it up well. I, and I, I think it's important to realize, and we said it at the beginning of the, of, of the show, that, that technology supplements, and it, and it certainly is a linchpin, but it, it still has to follow the regulations and the, and the science. And, and the infusion of technology into this does, does not solve everything. Right. Um, there's still data privacy. There's still patient confidentiality, confirmation of, of patient identity. Uh, all of those things still have to still have to happen. And when you're, you know, shipping an investigational product to a patient, pe technology may be able to track it, but you you still have to do things kind of the old-fashioned way, making sure that a a product reaches a an enrollee, et cetera, and, and, and they follow all the right protocols. So the human element's not going away, the, you know, the process element's not going away, but technology can certainly uh, accelerate and make things uh, a whole lot easier. 
I think that's a, that's a great point. And again, when we look at technologies, um, we've got to ensure that they're deployed, they're fit for purpose. Um, that's right. And that goes right into the regulations and just, uh, for the population that's under study. And we've got to recognise that just because it works in one indication, one population, it may not be the best approach for a different therapeutic area, a different population. So, you know, we look at that, certainly from, from Clario, we are we're blessed with a, an enormous vault of metadata from our you know, more than, well, Clario has been around for nearly 50 years, but certainly capturing this data for, you know, well over 25 years, I can say in the ECOA space, we can really look in depth at the population that's under study and, and cut and design the trial around that population that puts the patient at the heart of the study. And that's an important aspect to understand what's, what's going to work for the patient, what's going to work in those indications and how, what is the best approach. And that's where we also provide a a lot of uh, um, advice and guidance for study design to be ensure we've got the best study design that will allow for the study to be successful and capture the scientific or clinical meaningful outcomes that the sponsor or client is looking to to achieve and hopefully therefore enable through better quality data better attention and better compliance bringing the uh, innovative new medicines to the market faster and by doing so helping and improving and extending the lives of millions around the world. And you got it. You got you got it at the core. I couldn't have said it better myself, Ryan. And that's that's the patient and their lives are at the core of everything. And that patient experience uh, should all we should always remember that. And technology plays a huge role in patient experience. I mean, not to not to consumerize this, but your average your average human being who does have a mobile phone and ha- does use technology every day is used to a very seamless or somewhat frictionless thing with everything that they do in 2022 and beyond. Uh, I, I mean, they what they do is they they look at things like a, a mobile ordering, hailing a cab, whatever things they do, and they're used to this frictionless experience. Now, believe me, I am not equating this industry or what we do with something like that. But their use of a frictional te- frictionless technology like that does kind of skew their thinking a bit as to how technology should work. Um, I think we have we play a big part of that, giving them usable tools, giving them the information they need, easing the technology burden so that things just work, educating them and making sure that training is easy for them and that things are. Um, I don't want to say set and forget it because that's not true, but just they're they're easy to understand. They're easy to comprehend when they do have help, when need help. They have it, et cetera. So we have a real opportunity and I think responsibility to build technology solutions um, that are high quality, secure, of course, and put the patient first. Jay, spot on. I think that that's great as well. And I'll, I'll even one, one step further as we look at the growing number of tech ecosystems or platforms that are needed to be used at sites. We've got to be very considerate of what we're putting, what pressure we're putting and burden we're putting on sites. And that that's also a consideration of ensuring that the investigators um, really are comfortable with the technologies being used. It's easy to use. It's, you know, it's, uh, um, how do you say, self-explanatory. <laughs> so there's no, you don't, you don't <laughs> need to have an IT. Much, way better, much better way. <laughs> yeah, you don't need to have an IT expert, you know, at sitting at the site all the time. Um, and that's part and parcel of giving the overall, what we call it, a trial experience for both site and, and patient, you know, really enhance that and make it a journey that they enjoy and not have a burden on either side there as well. If you don't mind if I interject here, it sounds like we are 
talking about the foundations of what is the industry happening right now for the future. And on that note, there's been a lot of discussion about, around diversity in clinical trials recently, and we're seeing more regulatory recommendations. I would like to know what are you um, helping or doing to help address this issue? And also, what are you seeing with the um, your clients to address these recommendations as they're coming out? So, well, uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> We're both super excited to talk. I, it, you know, for, for, for me, look, I'll, I'll start and, and I'll, I'll kick it over to Brian. There have been egregious incidents in the past, and I think we have to start any talk of diversity in the clinical trial space starts has to start with building trust and acknowledging the past. It just does. It, it has to acknowledge you have to you have to acknowledge the past in order to be real. I mean, all, all the, the more classic examples, whether it was the, you know, the Tuskegee study, et cetera, and all of those things that have happened, they happened. And we have to acknowledge them and put those behind us, but learn from them. And, and so we have to at least acknowledge that. I mean, for, for me, I think technology can empower uh, diversity and our commitment to diversity. We can reduce barriers uh, to, to trial access through the use of technology, we have to be very, very intentional about getting into these communities, uh, the underserved communities. COVID, I think, shined a light on many things. It, it shined, it certainly shined a light on access to sites, access to healthcare resources. The underserved communities, all it did was exacerbate that. We've seen it in the COVID statistics. People of color are, are unfortunately overrepresented in a very bad way. Uh, when it comes to COVID. So we have to use this as a wake-up call, and, and certainly co uh, we're committed to it at Clario. Uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, sustainability, all under the umbrella of people first always. Uh, our tenets woven into the fabric of every part of our culture, and um, we have to point the finger inward at Clario and start with our own, uh, our own organization. Our customers are holding us accountable to it, but quite frankly, even if they weren't, we would have to hold ourselves accountable to it because it's just the right thing to do. Yeah, thanks, Jay. I, I agree with that. I mean, I'm even going to go back to you know basic stats that that are you know sitting out there, and they might vary slightly, but you know we we quite often see that you know 30% of patients, and I use this in the U.S. basis, it changes depending on on the geography, of course, but 30% of patients live within two hours of a investigator site. That's 30%. Um, and that's two hours. I mean, two hour commute to a site would be, you know, it's a big burden. So using conventional settings whereby everything is done at a site realistically excludes straight off the bat 70 percent of the population. That's a crazy, you know, crazy stat that has been ignored. It's starting to be addressed by the industry. And I think as we look at these technologies that, as Jay said, enable patient access. And that goes both ways. That enables sponsors and um, other companies, zeros, to be able to access patients. But from our side, it very much allows patients to have access to trials the other way. It's bi-directional patient, patient access. So I think that's really, really critical. And having that right technology and the flexible study approaches, we can call that DCT if we wish to, really brings that home. I think equally, when we do start to look at, you know, bringing in a more diverse, diversified population, We've got to look at what that means also for the industry from a from a business perspective. And quite often, you know, you've got to have a representative population that will enable to understand the safety and efficacy of a drug before it goes to market. 
And I've seen numerous occasions where populations haven't been adequately represented and there's been a requirement by regulatory bodies to do an additional study in that population to get them on the label. We quite often see this with older adults. We often see it with, with people of colour. Paediatrics is a different discussion because there needs to be very specific trials in paediatrics. But we've got to get in there. We've got to get sites into urban centres where we're going to get a, a better mix of population in there. In addition to that, I think what's important, we're seeing this coming through in the industry as well, is a more of a diversified workforce within the industry that will have, you know, knowledge and understanding of the different, different makeups of, of the population. Equal to that, you know, some of these components, we should be looking at sites and promoting that sites have SOPs or, you know, required operating procedures and of ways to engage and communicate with a diverse population. I think that's really important as well. And another point that we will probably get to, we see quite often, and particularly we can talk about the FDA, um, patient-focused drug development, you know, but we sh should be treating regulatory guidance on increasing diversity as a requirement rather than a recommendation currently. That's where, where we stand and, and it only enables better data, more representative data and a higher chance of success certainly will unlock greater clinical evidence with a more diversified and representative population. You know, it's just a staggering number you mentioned, Brian, 30% within two hours. I re In a prior life, I was CIO for the American Cancer Society and and, and, and this makes sense to me because one of the biggest barriers to care, to cancer care, whether it's a clinical trial or just more standard approved care, is access. Access to a cancer cancer uh, hospital, access is something is simply where they live in town and they just don't have a car. So one of the biggest things that ACS does, and not to not talk too much about them, but is providing um, access, a ride to chemotherapy, a, a uh, you know an awareness so for us I, you know for for our industry you, and you touched on it, and i think it's so important is developing a diverse pool of investigators and sites that are rooted in underserved communities and can build that trust over time you've got to build those long-term relationships and rebuild trust invest in those communities the investigators have to represent those communities it should be people who look like them and you've got to make that commitment over time. Trust isn't rebuilt over over overnight. So I think the the more we can do in those areas, the 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 more success we're going to have. So along that, uh, along those lines, I, I do have a question specifically around remote data collection. How does that work for participants, especially the ones that you're trying to reach to increase diversity in the clinical traps? So I'll, I'll give a, a simple example here and thankfully it is within the regulatory requirements um, if we are looking to capture electronic patient reported outcomes at epro we are obligated to to be able to provision devices just as an example so that if if there is a population that may not be um, in a position to have their own smart devices where the phones are not we are obligated to provide devices to these patients so that so that they are not excluded from studies. This is, you know, said in, in the regulations. And I think that's just a very simple example of, you know, regulations being on the side of diversity and making sure that we have, we, we, we don't exclude people because of various factors. Yeah, no, I think you set it up. We have to be ready for and you touched on the word earlier hybrid, right? I mean, we have to we have to meet the the sites and the patients where they are. And uh, certainly under the umbrella of the regulations that that guide us, 
So provision devices certainly are a part of that, making sure that, that we give them the tools that they need to be to be part of this. Um, DCTs aren't going away. COVID accelerated any, everything, and, and this is going to be somewhat the new normal. Um, but to Brian's earlier point, it's always going to be a mix of hybrid, right? You may see in a particular study, in a particular geo, and a uh, you know a, a much greater emphasis on on provision devices than you would otherwise. Uh, but based on the the type of study and the type of tools that are that are needed. But um, I think at Clario, what we've done a nice job with is that we are um, very committed to the entire ecosystem, right? And, and this isn't, a, we're not a one trick pony. And and we we see where this is going and, and we're prepared, you know, to go into the future. Yeah, and just to add on to that, it's great that you mentioned that Jay around the, the ecosystems. We, we have the ability um, for to conduct trials anywhere. And that's really important when we are looking at this. So wherever the patient may be, we're gonna have, have the technology, the ability to capture that data in a really, validated, trustworthy uh, and secure fashion. I think that that's key there as well. I know there's sometimes discussions about what if, you know, Wi-Fi or internet is not available in certain areas. That's a very small hurdle to overcome. You know, use a, use a MiFi if you have to, you know, just enable that for a patient. They're not big hurdles. So all those considerations we think about and make sure that we enable the patients to take part in what is uh, very important you know, research and development of new molecular entities and interventions and medicines to to get to the market. Right, and and we have to be prepared for more emerging technologies. I don't know that AI or artificial intelligence, ML, machine learning, et cetera, are exactly new words, uh, especially for this audience. But certainly, they are um, are now getting closer and closer to ready for prime time. And you know, we've made a commitment to both of those technologies, but we have to be ready even even beyond that. You know, what is the, what's around the next corner? Uh, is it, is it leveraging blockchain? Is it, uh, I mean, there are vast amounts of data to be, to be sifted through and collected. And, and, and we have to be ready for all of that. I mean, and to Brian's point about there are solvable problems when it comes to Wi-Fi and when it comes to internet access, it won't be long be- before the iPhone 15, 16, whatever number it is, does have some limited satellite capability as well. So that if you are in an area where you don't have Wi-Fi or internet, it's gonna have some at least emergency satellite. Could that potentially be leveraged in underserved areas that don't have more traditional to upload um, you know, data? And we, we wanna be ready for that and, and, and partner with these technology companies so that we're prepared to leverage them when they do emerge. With those discussions, it's actually extremely exciting, but there's also another element that we haven't actually addressed yet, and that's security. Hmm. So how do you see security evolving as remote data capture becomes increasingly an important part of the clinical trial ecosystem? What are the potential risks a patient should consider? And also, we are starting to talk more of the future. How do you see that evolving and some of the security approaches that we're going to put in place and then some of the risks that we may have in the future well we touched a little bit on it earlier and and you know for me it it like anything the the more tech we, we see the number of endpoints every home now has at least 15 to 20 different endpoints on the internet right whether it's your tv your dishwasher you know brian's probably got 38 tvs in that house of his he's he's got all kinds of things you know seven or eight cars uh <laughs> uh, but look, everything is connected, right? Uh, we're always walking around with our phones, our, our iPads, our uh, Android devices, and, and we have a little bit of everything. And so uh, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not a hard follow that uh, data privacy, data, uh, patient confidentiality, we can't take our eye off the ball. 
all it did was make our problem a little bit bigger. And um, we still have to ensure that the, the patient data is confidential. We, should, we still have to ensure trust to source. We, shall, we still have to ensure data quality and integrity so that an investigator knows that it, it was the right person, it was uh, safe throughout the, the, the journey, and that certainly the regulatory bodies uh, have confidence that that data was safe throughout its journey. We have to do basic things like confirm patient identity, all BYOD or decentralized trials or whatever the word to Brian's earlier point in the conversation, whatever you want to call it, it adds a degree of difficulty to confirm patient identity. When I walk into a site, I can provide a state or federal government ID. Brian knows who I am. He's looking right at me. I'm providing information based on that. I'm at home. There's an additional set of hoops that I might have to go through in order to do that. And um, I mean, those are just some of the challenges that we have to overcome, but all are overcomable. I don't know that um, any of them are, aren't. I'd, I'd love Brian's thoughts on this, but what do you, Brian? Yeah. So, Jay, thanks. You use you, you some that are very nicely. I think what I would just add in there as well is that we, we talked about uh, security um, and that's very much linked into the data privacy elements as well. And here at Clario, you know, we work to the highest standards that are, you know, in the world to make sure we do that. And one of those is GDPR coming out of the out of Europe, uh, global data privacy regulations. And um, we adhere to those standards to ensure that we we meet all of those. If there are additional local standards in whatever country we might be uh, performing and supporting a trial in, we also make sure we adhere to those data privacy components as well, which goes into the into the security elements. So that, that's all that's all covered in there. Yeah, and, and we've got to be really, really good at the basics. Honestly, Laurie, we you know, the, the, the technologies exist secured for secure data capture and transmission, all of your encryptions, processes, procedures, training, uh, all of those things have to be amplified. And, and I think at Clario, uh, we've made a major commitment over the last few years uh, and into the future. Uh, really accelerating our our uh, or improving the posture of our security positioning, and I'm very very excited. And, and look, it, it's pinned to the top of nearly everything that we do, along with many other things, our commitment to people and everything else. But listen, um, we we talked earlier about trust. Our our patients, our sites, and our sponsors have to trust that we're doing everything uh, in a compliant and secure way, and that's okay uh, because we we want to be a trusted partner. So uh, I know we're making the investments, our people breathe it and live it every day, and we're never satisfied. I tell people all the time and I tell customers all the time, I get paid to be paranoid. So in my role as CIO and CTO, I get paid to be paranoid. I'm sure Brian feels the same and that's okay. It comes with the job and, and I, I never want our patients, our sites or our sponsors to doubt our commitment to security. Yeah, thanks, Jay. You know, when we start now to look a little bit where the future is going, I'm going to, you know, look back a little bit first. And I remember giving a presentation, oh, it must be oh, maybe 15 years ago. It seems a long time ago where the question came from the audience, you know, will technology impact us? I mean, now we know the answer of absolutely. But I, I recall my response to yes, technology will impact you either directly or indirectly. And I use the use the, the story of my wife buying one of those early Fitbits. And uh, I noticed, you know, that, you know, she was doing more walks, et cetera, et cetera. So that was directly impacting her. It indirectly impacted me because the invitation to do many more post dinner walks uh, seemed to occur. Uh, when I realized after a while that I was only being invited to help, help my wife get to her target of steps. So I was getting 
indirectly <laughs> uh, approach through technology and having an impact there. But I think we we can all 100% say hand in heart that technology impacts our lives and is very much part of our lives. So where are we going with this? I think, you know, Jay spoke a little bit, little bit about AI and the ability to um, unlock clinical evidence, understand where some data points may be linked that we might not see with the naked eye, but through the, the advent and, and uh and advancement of AI, if we call it AI, and again, this is a term that's used quite loosely around the industry of, you know, what exactly is AI, but that's not for this discussion. Um, we're going to be able to start to see very uh, closer links across data and out outcome assessments that will enable us to understand the population, potentially even to get into the contextualization of this data, getting feedback from patients of, you know, what was happening at that time when you were taking those measurements so we can understand, you know, why potentially blood pressure is up, you know, why potentially this showed a, a quality of life in, improvement. We we don't capture items such as, you know, the, if the patient won the lottery, you know, I'm sure they're going to hit the quality of life has increased quite considerably. Nothing to do with uh, technology, but we don't capture that information. I think we're, we're going to get closer. Um, clinical trials is going to move in the direction of real world much more rapidly, but real world is going to move us in a slower pace towards clinical trial environments because we are now capturing so many different elements of our health. Every day as we walk through, just by having a phone, you can look at your steps, you can, so much information out there. And we start to dig into being able to extrapolate and use electronic health records in a really good and uh, consistent and acceptable methodology for regulatory decision making. We're going to look at the point where we're going to have a much better view of, of patient populations and specific indications and be able to support them and have uh, far better approaches to drug development that will, one, with better quality data understanding, probably move to be able to reduce sample size. If you've got better quality data, you won't need as many patients. If you are using real world data potentially in synthetic arms that we see in some studies nowadays, we're going to reduce the number of patients that are required in a study. And again, all of that, you know, we can say can reduce costs, but more importantly, from, from the humanity point of view, it rapidly accelerates the speed at which uh, new drugs can get to the market. Again, I go back to, to help improve and extend the lives of countless people around the world. Yeah, and that's the end goal right there. It, that's the end goal is transforming lives uh, through better evidence and and higher quality evidence and speed. AI is going to look, AI is going to play a big role, and, and Brian touched on it nicely. There is so much data out there. So whether it's just from a patient enrichment, recruitment, enrollment strategy, all of those things, I mean, there's so much out there. Investigate, I can see it playing a role in investigator site selection. Certainly can pay a, play a role in patient monitoring, uh, adherence to the study, adherence to medication, patient retention, uh, it, it's, but to me, it's right now, it's a supplement to the good human beings that are out there working really hard in this industry. Uh, it's not a replacement. It's uh, so uh, very excited, though, about the future and its potential. Yeah. And Jay, just maybe loop back in with this potential to understand the populations. We spoke about uh, the patient diversity. Um, we should be able to hone in where these patients are and be able to attract and bring these patients and give them access through being able to understand where the prevalence of the indication or population under study are located and target into those areas to get that diversity into the trials. Well, this should be, this should, this is not far out. And I think the, the solutions for that already exist. We just need to exploit them and leverage them better to, to really give that opportunity to all, no matter 
where they come from or where they're going, that opportunity to be part of, of uh, the important role of clinical research. Thank you, Jay and Brian, for this lively discussion. I'm I'm very excited about this topic, and so I was very grateful that both of you come. And I'd also like to thank our sponsor, Clario, for making this podcast happen. Thanks, Laurie. Great to be here. Thank you very much, Laurie. Great to be here.